Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. On the Sporting Couch with Gary Bloom. Hello, I'm Gary Bloom. Welcome to On the Sporting Couch. I'm a psychotherapist, counsellor and broadcaster, and that means I work one-to-one with all sorts of people who are having or have experienced problems in their day-to-day lives. It's sometimes called a talking therapy. It doesn't mean the individual is ill, but these sessions give people the opportunity to talk about the things that are really affecting them and gives them a chance to get things off their chest. I treat people who are suffering from anxiety, depression, addictive behaviours and relationship issues. Meet Sharon Davis, silver medalist at the controversial 1980 Olympic Games in Moscow, a Games boycotted by the USA. She came second to Petra Schneider, who later admitted her performance had been enhanced as part of the infamous East German doping programme. Since then, she's had a successful media career as a poolside reporter and TV presenter, recently appearing on Celebrity Island with Bear Grylls. Welcome to On the Sporting Couch with me, Gary Bloom, and Sharon Davis, who said that the undercurrent of her life has been fair play and she feels sorry for the drugs cheats. Do you think there is a sharp edge to you, Sharon, that people... um respond to I mean you, you when when I meet you and when we've spoken on the phone I've often thought to myself mm, I don't want to argue with her oh gosh but you're probably right actually but I don't know that that's terribly unusual of most sports people I think most sports people are reasonably forthright because you have to be quite brave to do what you do so if you don't have that about you if you were timid I don't think you'd make it all the way to the top somehow. I bet no, not many people have described you as timid. No, I don't think I've, no, I don't <laughs> think I've ever been probably described as timid. I will put my hands on my heart. And, and there are lots of things, particularly this last year. This last year for me has been a really very, very difficult year. Sadly, I lost my mum, who was my kind of rock. Um, the person that I would always ring, the person that would always tell me 100% truth, you know, good and bad. And then my daughter sadly lost a friend who hung himself just before I went on the island to go and do this crazy adventure with Bear Grylls. So that put me as a mum in a really difficult predicament as to where I should be doing my job or with my child. And in the end, I felt I had to be with my child, so I came back. So that was quite challenging. Um, And then there's been a few things before Christmas which have added to it. So this year's been really difficult. And it's made me look at some of the things that I'm doing that I would actually like to change, which are learnt behaviours from my years of swimming. What are those learnt behaviours that you'd want to change? I think my defence system has always become too strong. You know, and as a child, when I was competing, I was very young. So, and Dad was very dominating, and he became my coach when I was sort of 10 or 11. He didn't really give me a lot of choices. So I just had to 
put up with it. And so my way of dealing with it was just to get incredibly strong and to, and then what's happened as I've become an, a, an adult is that then my voice has become too loud sometimes because as a kid I had no voice, really. It's a tough question. I'm going to ask it anyway. That's all right. You, you ever... go and ask it. I might not answer it. <laughs> what stopped you going into therapy? And I'm just noticing you holding, you folding your arms in front uh, of you. I did go into therapy, funnily enough, this this last year, at the end of this last year, because I felt that the grief from my mum's death and mm. all the things that happened in the summer made it even worse. And unfortunately, the people close to me really got it in the neck because that was what happened. I got went into defence mode because I was so sad. And I was really struggling with the loss of mum. You know, mum would be the person I'd ring two or three times a week and ask her, you know, just to give me the brutal truth. And she'd tell me to calm down and bite my tongue or do this and do that. And I didn't have her. So she wasn't that buffer. She was gone. Um, and of course, I still had to be strong for my three kids. I still had to work. I still had to do all the things that I was normally doing, as well as a crazy programme like Bear Grylls The Island, which is just about the toughest challenge that's available to do on television. Um, so it was it was a, a very tough year. And it did make me stand back and kind of go, I need to try to learn to curb some of this. Because I say things I don't necessarily mean, but it's just a defence system. Um, it's a way of probably, I don't know, just, just being strong. But overtly strong. And has that impacted on relationships you've had, Sharon? Yeah, I think probably. Um, although I still just, you know, I naturally go off and pick alpha males, which might not be the right choice. <laughs> I need someone that I feel that I can learn from. You know, I need someone that I feel that, that's similar to me. And then I love people that are cultural and love history and architecture and art and and, and also understand sport, you know, and understand why I would train six hours a day to win a medal because a lot of people don't really get that you know why would you want to give up your childhood why would everything be focused on one event every four years it's, it's a lot of people don't quite understand why something why winning is that important why is winning important to you I don't know I don't know why I don't know whether you can put that there or whether you have to train it there or whether you're born with it that's the big and ultimate question isn't it really I think a little bit of both I think you are born with certain natural instincts that are genetic and then, of course, it's your youth, and then it's your natural abilities. It's physiologically whether you're the right shape to be able to compete. You know, you could be the most competitive person in the world and be four foot six, and you're never going to be an amazing basketball player. It's not going to happen. So, you, all of those things have got to be right. All of the ingredients for that massive cake have got to be absolutely perfect. Then you've got to bake it and present it on the day perfectly. You know, and there's so many parts of that equation that could go wrong. I'm going to start. To take you back right to the early days, Mum Sheila, Dad Terry, Terry was your coach, and it didn't always, it wasn't always the easiest of relationships with Dad, was it? But I don't think anybody has the easy relationship with a parent as a coach. It's not the ideal setup because it means you can't ever escape from it. So when you're training six hours a day, you know you go to the pool, you come home. It would be lovely to have moaned to Mum and Dad about how tough the coach was, whatever. I couldn't do that. And then at the same time, I'd have the other problem, but the swimmers would moan to me about the coach, who's my dad. So I'm kind of stuck in that awful place where I can't get away from it. I mean, he put a bar across my door and I wasn't even allowed in and out of my bedroom unless I did chins every single time. I wanted to go in and out. Um, my mum's house used to turn into the gym, you know, we'd push all the furniture back. And he was a very blinkered, determined man. Um, and in hindsight, you can see the mistakes, but at the time, I don't think any of them were made deliberately. He mm. just felt that a day missed was a day lost against the rivals. And so I wasn't allowed days off. You know, I, I broke both my arms when I was 11, had to carry on training with two broken arms in plasters. Um, I broke my nose. I had, um, 
I remember having eight stitches across my mouth because I had an abscess. And I think I had the operation at four o'clock in the afternoon. At six o'clock in the afternoon, I was training again. He just went, oh, with chlorine, you'll clean it. You know, <laughs> it's like, and so I learned to be that, you know, unless my arms were falling off, I carry on. You see, as a therapist, I'm raising my eyebrows thinking, blimey, what does that do to a daughter-dad relationship? Yeah. Which obviously sets the template for every relationship you're going to have in your life. I know, it's a good question, isn't it? Maybe I should see you afterwards on the couch privately. <laughs> um, the good thing is I'm a little bit more aware of it now than I was, you know, 20 years ago. Um, it, it does it, it does create massive strains and stresses. You know, I, I'm, and my sadly, my biggest memory when I touched the wall when I won my medal in Moscow wasn't, oh my gosh, isn't that amazing? It was, thank God I can stop now. Because I felt I kind of owed him that. I owed my family that for all the sacrifices that they'd made. Because there was no lottery funding in those days. You know, everything came out of my parents' pocket. I, I don't think my mum had a holiday with my brothers from from my age of about 11, 10, 11. So they would have been four years younger than me, seven, eight. They didn't have a family holiday. Every penny was spent on my swimming, travelling, taking me around the country, taking me internationally abroad. Um, my dad had no interest in what my brothers were up to do, up in, you know, what they were doing, because he was putting all his attention onto me. So there was a, a tremendous amount of expectation that I had to re- repay them with success. I'm getting the slight feeling of guilt there, if I'm honest. Is, is there guilt on, on your behalf? Um, mm, I felt sorry for my brothers. Um, you have twin brothers? Yeah, I have twin brothers, Mark and Tony, that are four years younger. And I felt that they didn't really have much of a normal upbringing because you know, there was so much being spent on me and so much attention on me and again there was no choice in that matter you know and I don't think they they don't hold it against me they understand that they really <laughs> I was kind of dragged screaming sometimes down to the swimming pool um and then, and when I have spoken to them they said well thank god it wasn't us you know so I don't know but it wasn't a normal childhood let's put it that way what are the effects that you feel on a day-to-day basis in the you know today when you look back and say well is it a surprise with the childhood I had it's a, it's a very hard question because ultimately I'm still the competitor. So when I, you know, line up to race, it's still me that has to race. So if I really didn't want to do it, I'd just lose races and then eventually he'd stop pushing. So it was a dichotomy in the fact that you've got this very pushy father who's pushing a child who is very keen to win, but pushing a child too much. So what he knocked out of me was the enjoyment of it. He didn't knock the, the, the wanting to win out of me. He knocked the fun out of the sport. After um, the swimming ends, your dad leaves you, Mum. Yeah, which was tough, you know, because my mum had given up so much. And then, of course, Dad ran off with somebody my age, which is tough for anyone to deal with, let alone someone that's in the public eye. Um, And there was a period of time where we didn't really communicate very much at all. And then I came back from university in America because I needed to be there for my mum, who was struggling. Didn't quite know what I wanted to do. There wasn't an awful lot of choice. You could kind of swim, live on the dole, or you could go to university and get a scholarship. I went to Berkeley. I was reasonably intellectual. I wanted to do a degree. Um, but I felt she needed me more, and I actually needed a break. And in those days, you couldn't take a break. You couldn't take six months off, you know, because you just were jaded and you swam competitively for 10 years and you just needed to go off and be silly for a while. You literally were not allowed to do that. So that's probably what all I needed. But in the end, I did a TV programme called Give Us a, P- a Clue, got paid 40 quid for this TV programme, and branded a professional on the same day that Sebastian Coe signed a contract with CNA to be CNA man. And all his money <laughs> went into a trust fund, 
Um, and he was racing Steve Ovette every weekend and being paid appearance money. And their money was going into a trust fund and they were paying their bills and carrying on doing their sport. So there was all there was massive differences between sport, which was ridiculous when we're all going into the same Olympic Games. But that was just, you know, that was what was happening at the time. So, again, frustrating. And I would say one of the things that's happened in my career is I've been a little bit unlucky with things like that. You know, I've had the East Germans to compete against. I had the whole professional situation to compete against. Um, it was just, you know, when I won my race in Moscow, they took out my second event. It's the only time they've taken the 200 IM out of the programme before or since, but they took it out for my Olympic Games. You know, it's like there's so many silly little things that have always just knocked me. But when I do a lot of motivational work, I always talk about being knocked over and having to, to stand back up again, you know, and learning that all of these things are lessons. You can turn around and say that they're mistakes, or you can turn around and say, well, I learned from them. Well, I think the word that comes up for me is failure and how we respond to failure yeah. and whether it's either something that knocks you down or something that you actually build on and say, well, I won't do it like that yeah, again. Yeah, exactly. And so that's why I would call it a lesson, because I would say, you know, if you don't learn, then it's a mistake. So but if you learn from it, it's a lesson. What have you learned from that period? Um, I have learned that, that you do have to get yourself back up again. You know, it may take a bit of time, it may take a little bit more time every single time something happens. But you you do have to dust yourself back off and stand up and, and carry on, really. Um, I mean, I'm very lucky. I have great friends. I'm still in touch with all my family. As I said, last year was tough because we lost mum. Um, I've got half-brother and half-sister who I'm very close to as well. Um, you know, I have a relationship with my dad still. He's 82 and still marching up and down a swimming pool, would you believe? Um, not surprising, I suppose, bearing in mind you know that he just... He has to be busy. What do you think? What do you feel about that? Seeing your dad march up and down a swimming pool, aged eighty-two years old, when you think I know exactly what those. Well, he doesn't treat them the way he treated me. He didn't even treat anybody else in the pool the same way he treated me. I mean, I swam with people like Andy Jameson, Mm. who I work with now for BBC. And Andy, if Andy sneezed, my dad would go, "Oh, Andy, go off and see Matron. You were ill." And I'd be like there with my arms falling off with you know glandular fever and two broken arms, and he'd be going, "And another ten times two hundred, Sharon." So he didn't treat other people the way he treated me. He was tough on everybody, but he was extra tough on me. You're listening to On the Sporting Couch with me, psychotherapist Gary Bloom, and a former Olympic swimmer, Sharon Davis. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact 
you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. This is On the Sporting Couch, a programme about good mental health in sport. I'm Gary Bloom and joining me is former Olympic swimmer Sharon Davis. You feel you missed out on something as a teenager, the, you know, the chance to grow up and have boyfriends and go to the pub for the first time and all the school discos. Did you feel you missed out on any of that? Yeah, but I always felt that those are the sort of things you could do when you're older. Hmm. You know, it's not like you can't do that later. Um, whereas a, a, a career in competitive sport is something that's very relative to your age and to your fitness and to your abilities. And so, therefore, it's the same really with schooling. You know, schooling really was... I mean, I changed schools right between right in the middle of my GCSE courses, so I had to learn everything all over again. Um, and it was tough. But, again, I always felt, well, if there was something I really missed, I could go back to school if I had to, but I can't go back to the swimming pool when I'm 35 because it will be too late and my body just won't do it. So my head was saying, well, these are things that I can catch up on. But yes, I mean, you do. I mean, it's not like I didn't have boyfriends. I did. It's not like I didn't travel the world. I did. Um, It was just, I suppose in some ways I was quite naive because I was a... Everything was very simple. You train very hard, you win a race. And life isn't quite that simple. You know, life isn't fair. And so the biggest mistake I made when I left swimming was expecting life to be fair. And it wasn't. But the biggest moment of your career, the silver medal in Moscow, was in a race that wasn't fair. Yeah. Because Schneider... All of my races, really. Schneider, who won the gold from East Germany, has since said, yes, I was was taking illegal substances. Mm. So I'm sorry, Sharon. It's not fair. (laughs) How do you feel looking back now... To Schneider's win and realising that you should have had the goal because you've, you've petitioned quite hard to, to Yeah, actually... but I knew that at the time. So you're saying it now like I didn't know I was standing next to some person that looked like a bloke, sounded like a bloke and swam like a bloke. I mean, I absolutely knew that at the time. We all knew it at the time. I mean, I won a bronze medal at the European Championships in when I was 14 behind two East Germans. So all of my silver and bronze medals are behind East Germans, every single one of them. Um, so it's it's... Not like I don't know. I do know. And it was very frustrating. And here comes a fascinating bit I think I want to examine about you. It's easy to understand why people would cheat. Mm-hmm. The, the, the desire to succeed is so great, etc., etc. I want to know why you didn't cheat. Um, for starters, I don't think they had much choice in the matter. So we're not talking about the sort of cheating that goes on now let's just say on the 100 metres on the track, where these are individuals that make that big choice, they're grown-ups, they're adults, and it's all about the lucrative benefits of winning and the money and the profile that comes with it. This was a, an East German society behind the Iron Curtain, and these were young girls that were plucked from obscurity and given extremely nasty drugs, which had massive side effects. And one of my big soapbox issues with the IOC was the fact that they did not protect them any more than they protected me. And so those people are very sick. And I've met Petra since. She's, 
still sounds like a bloke. She has heart problems, she has fertility problems, and I would not swap my medal for her gold if that's what I had to have to win it. And for me, that was always the case. You know, I did not want to look like a man. I mean, I don't mind being strong. I, I don't mind being determined. Um, I don't mind, I suppose, having, you know, I probably do have slightly more natural testosterone than the average female anyway, because I think that's often the case with competitive women. But um, I wouldn't want to look like a bloke. As far as I'm concerned, I'm very interested in still looking like a woman. And they looked like and sounded like blokes. And they probably didn't have too much choice in the matter either. So I hear the apologist side of you and saying that we can't blame those people. And I agree with you. I, I don't. I don't have a problem with her as an individual. So let's twist this round, Sharon, and say, why would you have never, even had you been offered drugs, what is it in your personality where you would say, that isn't for me? Because I'd like to think that I'm not a hypocrite. And I do like working with kids I do love the morality of sports my children are all involved in sports and I wouldn't be able to stand up in front of a bunch of I don't know corporate people or a bunch of sixth formers at a school where I often speak and talk about sport and hard work and integrity if I won my medal by cheating I wouldn't be able to do it I literally would not be able to do it but that's now as a mature woman even then it would have exactly the same would have made no difference. I'm just interested in your in the, the, the ethical structure of Sharon Davis aged 19, 20, mm. 21, 22. It must have been there, Sharon, right early on. Yeah, you've got to remember I actually retired at 18 and a half, exactly. 19. You know, and I spent eight years away and then came back and competed in the 92 Olympics, having spent eight years off doing no competitive sport whatsoever. Um, I... I think my dad was offered drugs. I think my dad was offered some basic steroids from weightlifting environment, but it never made its way to me. Uh, and, and he would never have contemplated it either because he's a very fair, honest man and just believes in hard work. Um, so I don't think that it was ever really a, a question that I would... And, and the other side of it is, you know, there is a massive safety side to these things. And I still worry today about how important is an Olympic medal? I'm not going to name the person because I may get sued, but there is one incredibly amazingly successful american sprint female who never got to see her children grow up probably because of what she was taking Mm. no medal is worth that in the world so even no matter how much you want to win it's not worth that okay you know how it is but i can't say (laughs) i do but that still doesn't quite answer the question about your ethical values and that's the bit i'm trying to dig down to yeah. are you a, were you a very moral person as a young woman or is, is that has been a has that been a flavor of your life what what is right and what is wrong or have you made mistakes and thought actually i shouldn't have done that oh i certainly made mistakes and said i shouldn't have done that but i would say that i'm probably quite moral and i would say i'm very honest so if you ask me a question i'll always give you an honest answer and mm. you know i, I and I, I like to think sometimes one of the reasons why i still work now is because i've not I've not manipulated anything. You know, even if I'm asked to promote a product, if I wouldn't use it or give it to my kids, I won't tell other people to use it, no matter how much money someone's offering me to do it. Because I think you have to just be able to live with yourself. Let's pick up that theme, living with yourself. And obviously, there's been two major strands to your career. One is a highly successful uh, swimmer. But the other one is this, what I would call more glamour side to your your career (laughs) through through TV. Uh, And of course, I remember you bursting onto the scene after you're swimming through gladiators. Yeah, but you know that's not true because you've seen the perms pictures on YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> well, you laugh about yourself, and that's an interesting that you laugh, I think, is a defence mechanism about what's going on. But there was, you were a pin-up at that time for many young men. 
Um, I wasn't aware of that. The same way that I wasn't aware of the career, it was never manipulated. So the career that's kind of happened has been an accident. I went to university in the States and I was interested in doing English and communications because I kind of understood that world a little bit. And it was a developing world in the 80s as well, you know. And then I got those opportunities to be involved, um, to present kids' TV shows and to be involved in, in you know, pundit work and so on and so forth. And I literally just took those opportunities um, gladiators. I mean, I turned down gladiators, I think, three years on the trot before eventually I said yes. Television was all about sticking this outfit as far up my backside as possible and flicking my hair, you know. It was, yeah, very different. How do so you... there's been a dichotomy in my life, really, I suppose, trying to run those the two things parallel. But there obviously you're aware of what television was trying to do. Was it easy to live with that um, image of yourself? So I was much told off by Nigel Lisco, who was the, the, the producer of the show. And um, there was a, a game called Atmospheres, which was like a big gerbil inside this huge cage. And you're supposed to win the game. So I pinned this girl to the corner, and afterwards he absolutely lambasted me because, because I'd pinned her to the corner and won the game. And I, and I said, but Nigel, I won, and that was the whole point. And he went, but it was boring. And next time, shove her around the arena. I'm like, nope, not doing that because I'm here to win. <laughs> so that was difficult too, you know. And I did another game called Tilt where we didn't even get to practice it because they were more interested in practicing than they needed to do more time on the lights. So the first time I ever did it was live on the television in a competitive environment. I was like, oh my God, what's going on? So yeah, there was lots of stuff which was quite strange, but it was getting 17, 18 million viewers and I needed to take the next step in my career and pay my bills and you know and just take on the next challenge really and at the time Derek was working on the show so he was away all summer Derek Redmond, Redmond my yeah, husband at the time so literally if I wasn't there with him I'd be in one place and he'd be in another so it just made sense in the end to to be in the same place let's just talk about the relationship between Sharon Davis and Amazon do you see yourself as Amazonian no no not at all so why there's any name left I had to have it oh um, come on <laughs> I'm not buying that <laughs> Um, Can you see how people would perceive you as being Amazonian, this very sort of tall, athletic woman? I suppose, but again, not manufactured that way. It just happens that way. I mean, I can't decide whether I'm tall or not. That's genetics. You know, I'm 5'10". I'm shrinking. I was 5'11". Um, and I'm naturally blonde. So, And my physique, because of swimming, has given me a reasonably big pair of shoulders, although I weigh less now than I did when I was competing. Um so all those things are genetic, really. I've just kind of made the most of what I've got. Which was? A, a sense of determination and ability to focus, I guess, and the opportunities that I was offered. Most of them I sort of took as I was growing up. I take a lot less now, I, you know, because I don't feel I have to um, and because I feel there's a lot more trivial things in the world now than there were 20, 30 years ago. Mm. It's become, I, I really don't like reality TV nowadays. And the five minute fame thing, I don't like at all. And I hate that as an example to my daughter. So it, it's, you know, they've all had sport in their life a few years ago. She's 19 now. And she came, she came down, run down the stairs one day and she said, oh, mummy, mummy, I've decided what I'm going to be when I grow up. And this is probably about 10 years ago. And she said, oh, I'm going to be a footballer's wife. And I said, Gracie, go back to your bedroom and stay there until you've worked out what's wrong with that sentence. <laughs> 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 and, and she's never visit, revisited that place, thank goodness. But I hate that. I hate that in society where people you know, want to have something for nothing. Because I suppose my morality is built on you have to work for what you get. And I like that because I think it's important, that lesson's important. What has, and I know you worked very hard to be a mum, 
because you had IVF. Yeah, that's Finn, my little one. He's ten. Mm. Yeah, four rounds. That's four years, eight rounds of IVF. I wouldn't put anyone through that. Yeah. That you know that determination was quite useful. <laughs> <laughs> but hugely emotionally challenging. Yeah, massive. It's horrible, and and I get upset when people go, well, you know. There's nothing wrong with you. If you can't have a baby, you can't have a baby. You've got to come to terms with it. Well, that's so unfair because there's, if, if you're infertile or you have a problem, you just can't see the problem. It's like mental health. You can't see that problem. doesn't mean to say that person doesn't have that problem. You know, if they, they've broken their arm, very simple, put it in plaster, it repairs. But if you have a fertility problem and it's not working, it has a massive impact on you if you want to be a parent and you can't be a parent. So I think, and I was very lucky because I already was a parent, but... You know, I was married again and my husband didn't have a child and I knew he wanted one, so it was very important for us as a couple that we had a child. Um, and so it was it was a really tough time and I do very much empathise with anybody who's going through IVF because it's an emotional roller coaster, and you feel like a failure because your body's not doing what it's supposed to do. You're listening to On The Sporting Couch, a programme about mental health in sport. I'm Gary Bloom, psychotherapist, and with me is Sharon Davis, former Olympic swimmer. Subscribe to this podcast on your podcast app and never miss an episode. Welcome back to On The Sporting Couch, a programme about mental health in sport. I'm Gary Bloom, psychotherapist, and with me in the studio today is former Olympic swimmer Sharon Davis. What has being a mum done to you? Yeah, it's, it, I think it's probably made me... It's, it, it's made me much more balanced. They, they come first. They always come first. They always have come first since I've had them. Um, that's not to say that I don't do things I want to do, but I have to make sure that they are doing what they want to do, that they're looked after, you know, that um, that they're happy, that everything's balanced. Um, you know, if, if I've got, got something and Gracie needs me or Elliot or Finn needs me and then there's something I want to do and they really need me, then they will come first. Mm-hmm. But if there's a way that they we can sort it so that they're looked after and I can still do the job or whatever I've got to do, then I'll do that. But ultimately, that they would still, you know. So it's changed priorities, I suppose. I think it makes you a lot less selfish when you become a parent. Most parents come to their children and try to encourage them to be involved in sport or music or, I don't know, literature, whatever their, their passion is, and they support them. And if there are days when they don't feel great or they don't want to do it or they've lost that passion, then the parent will come up with something else and they try to modify it. My dad didn't do that. My dad just took away my choices. So my way of dealing with that was to be strong because my voice was never heard. No matter how much I protested, he just didn't, he just read rug shot over the top of me. And even if I went to my mum who listened, she wasn't able to make him do anything different. So so that was the, the difficulty. I mean, the one thing I have absolutely done is to be totally different with my children. I was 100% determined that I wouldn't do that, that I would support them and I would encourage them to be involved in sport because it's given so much to me, but I would always give them choices. Well, you said to me when we spoke on the f- telephone uh, a few weeks ago, it, you've lost your competitive edge since having kids. I think I've become less competitive. So I don't know about competitive edge because I wouldn't really put myself up there to be 
as competitive now as I would have done 20, 30 years ago. Mm. But I think that it's it's made me much less selfish. And as an athlete, you have to be incredibly selfish because you have to put you and your performance before everything and anybody, really. It strikes me talking to Sharon that, that happiness has been a bit of a goal of yours, which gradually, 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 <laughs> you're getting closer and closer to. Is, is that a fair summation? Oh, I don't know. Um, I think I, I, I think I've always had things in my life that have made me happy I mean I've always had amazing friends I mean one of my best friends was my roomie at my first Olympics when I was 13 you know I'm, I'm I value my friendships um, and people that look after me I look after them um, and I'm very loyal um, so I don't know I think you have phases in your life so I think everybody has phases in your life when things are going better and then and then you have dips and they don't go so well you know and then you have to put yourself up and then get out there and and make good things happen again life is not one lovely straight line it just isn't so what makes you resilient and that's a really interesting question for you what makes you resilient to those particular challenges that have come up and bitten you on your backside Mm. um i suppose the personal desire to 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 want to be the best i can be and to you know to to get up and to try again and then just the people around me that, that I love and that love me. Um, you know, and I would say I'm very lucky because I have loads of fantastic friends and family that I feel loved by and that I love. So that's all good. You know? But there, yeah, there's been challenges. Last year's probably been the toughest year of my life, to be honest with you, without a shadow of a doubt. Let's return to this last year uh, and those challenges. What's been the hardest? Has it been losing mum? Yeah, losing mum was really difficult. I mean, <clears throat> she had um, an immune problem, which meant she had to be on steroids. Um, she doesn't. She's never smoked. She doesn't drink, and yet she ended up with liver cancer um, because of the steroids that she was on. And but the great thing was that she, you know, the quality of life she had right up to the end was pretty good. She lived in the family home where we'd all grown up. She was determined not to sell it, and it was only the last month where she was really poorly and she couldn't do what she wanted to do. So that was great. Um, and she was seventy-seven when she died. You know, she and I. So therefore, I was very lucky. I've had her for fifty-four years of my life. She only had her mum for seventeen years of her life. But it's still hard when you have to adapt to something you've had for so long and that you've got used to. And she she was this person that I could always gravitate back to who knew me inside out and would always tell me the brutal truth, you know, whether it was what I wanted to hear or no. So so that that oracle is quite hard to lose. Do you see elements of your mum inside yourself now in your own every day to day living? Funnily enough, actually, you know, my mum is is really passive and very unaggressive and very um, sometimes too easygoing. So I probably I grew up determined not to be that easygoing because my dad was such a strong character. He very much dominated my mum. So I was determined I wasn't going to be like that. You know that I wasn't going to I was going to be independent um, and be able to stand on my own two feet and make my own choices. Because you've got to remember, then my dad just walked out on my mum. You know, went off with someone that was eighteen. What was that like? And my mum really struggled. I mean, my mum literally didn't leave the house for six months. What was it like having a stepmum or stepmum relationship? Oh, no, I didn't have a stepmum relationship. I mean, she's six months older than me. You don't have a stepmum <laughs> relationship with someone who's that age. Um, it's fine. I mean, you know, she sends me a Christmas card. We get on fine. I love my stepbrother and my half-brother and half-sister very much. Um, and that's their mum. And, she, you know, she left my dad a few years later and has moved on with her life. Um, families are complicated you know everybody looks up from the outside at a family and thinks well well, 2.4 children and and, and I don't think one of those really exists 
we all have our own issues inside of our own families. So for me, I suppose I've never got too hung up on that, that we're supposed to all sit around, you know, on a Sunday and have lunch at 2.30 and the roast. And we've never, I've never had that life. I've always had quite an unusual, spontaneous life. But I'm guessing there's a bit of residual anger there. That's what I'm trying to get at. I wonder if there's a bit of anger that's driven you forward, Mm. Sharon, to have this very, very bright and successful career. I would say that, oh gosh, anger. anger. Yes, there's probably been a bit too much. I, I probably revert to anger sometimes when I shouldn't. I use anger as my crutch and I shouldn't. Can and you give me, an, for instance, of when you've inappropriately perhaps used anger? I have a very sharp tongue and I, and I sometimes say things I don't mean. To hurt people? No, not really. I don't think I do it to deliberately to hurt them. I think it's, it's, it's like a battle mode. So if I get involved in an argument with somebody all of a sudden there's no boundaries because when I grew up I had to win and that's not a good thing because there should be boundaries there should be things that you say and do that you shouldn't pass those points really do you know you're about to say them Mm, I know after I've said them (laughs) (laughs) and that's what you I need to come to you yeah that's what I need to learn I need to learn sometimes to probably bite my tongue I'm just wondering I understand the defence mechanism. I understand why you'd want to say How do that. I fix that, Gary? Come on. Give me give me some advice live on the radio. Um, well, it's about <laughs> understanding your motivation. Is it to hurt? Is it yeah. to hurt that person? Is it just you don't want to back down? Is it about you not feeling stupid? Do you feel yeah. somehow uh, insignificant if you were to let that person win? Because the majority of times in those situations, the best option is to walk away. Yeah, but you see, don't win, do you? You know, you both lose. And I think that's probably the biggest lesson I've learned in the last few months of this year, actually, is that I was getting myself into a confessed environment and using anger as my crutch to try and win something when actually, ultimately, I lost. Because that aggression is, is not healthy and it's not nice. So that's something that, although this year's been probably one of my toughest years of my life, it's also probably been one of the most illuminating years of this learnt behaviour that I've had that needs addressing. And are you in the midst of that, Sharon, at the moment? Are you in therapy looking no, at No, I, I mean, the thing, the thing is, once you've got that revelation and once you've worked it out, once you've had those sort of conversations, I don't know that anyone else can fix that for you. I think it's your job then to recognise it and to do something about it. So, and I've now got to kind of spend a bit of time just making sure that I put those new practices in, you know, into effect, really. I'm still unclear about what you exactly mean. Are you the sort of person that will get into a row in a, in a restaurant or a supermarket? No, no, not or is at all. It, or is it more with personal It's front? more personal. So it's only people that are close to me. I wouldn't actually do that with anybody in the general public. I wouldn't. I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't. But you know, not not at all. It's people that are close to me that end up getting the buffer. Well, I would argue then it's those people who you feel safest with yeah. to have those very tough conversations with. But there's no boundaries. Yeah, I know. So, so does it end up with? sort of words that we can't broadcast on the radio is, is it, is, do you have those sort of conversations no not really no no i no not at all i use clever things which hurt far more than that so you use your intellect as yes. a weapon yes so so you, it's not nasty swear words or anything like that it's never be calling anyone stupid or dumb or whatever it would be using something which i know would be quite which would really hurt because i would use my intellect and, and work out how i could kind of score a point you know and, and that's that's really destructive and that's something that that i have recognized that um that I've got to stop and the only reason that's happened is because of the grief so what was happening with the grief was I was using I was turning that grief into anger because that was my natural default mode 
And so it's it's that process which has made me recognise it more this last year than ever before. And that would have only happened really because of the grief, I think. And yet a lot of that banter, um, those sort of conversations are very, very prevalent in the broadcasting world. Mm. As you know yourself, you go into a major championships or outside broadcast, you with a whole group of people who you're with for maybe three or four weeks. And sometimes you rub up not not particularly well against those people. Um, I don't know because I don't have that in my professional life. You know, but I'm I'm very honest. But as I said, I'm very loyal, and I and I've been working in this industry for thirty years, and I'd like to think that half the time I'm I'm still working because of my integrity and because of my honesty and because of my work ethic. And I think if if there were you know issues, then maybe that wouldn't be the case. As I, I think the problem isn't isn't out there in the big bad world the if there is an issue the issue is is in my very close intimate relationships my family because i feel safe with them and then i end up saying things that really i would not say to someone i don't know terribly well subscribe to this podcast on your podcast app and never miss an episode and find more podcasts from talksport at talksport.com/podcasts or by searching for talksport in the podcast store Welcome back to On The Sporting Couch, a programme about mental health in sport. I'm Gary Bloom, psychotherapist, and with me in the studio today is former Olympic swimmer Sharon Davis. You've been married three times. Yep. Has this come up in those, in those relationships where you've thought that it's damaged the marriage? The first marriage, um, I was very young, and I shouldn't have got married. And even on the day I got married, I realised I shouldn't. He was a lovely man, and um, I was just youth, to be honest with you. I think nowadays it wouldn't even happen, because people live with each other, and you didn't in those days. You literally had to either kind of be married again or not, you know. So, um, and I think then with Derek, we had sport in common, and when sport stopped, we didn't have very much in common at all. But actually, we're still quite good friends, and I'm still very good friends with his parents. Mm. Um, and then with with Tony, which is Finley's dad, I think um, there was a bit of a control war going on because I kind of like these alpha males, but then what happens, it becomes a battle zone. And so that's really what happened there. So there's different reasons. Um, I'm still a bit of a romantic. I still love to think that I could grow old with somebody and I do still believe in love and, and all of that. Um, so, you know, it's just, I don't know, I'm still still out there looking, as they say. What are you looking for? <laughs> I don't know. I'll know when I see it. Um, and is it harder and harder to find as you get older? Probably, just because you get older, don't you? And the pool's smaller, really. And you get fussier, you know. So, And you learn more as you get older, so therefore the, your checklist gets longer. Um, for me, there's always got to be chemistry. Yeah. My mum used to constantly say to me, Sharon, maybe you don't need chemistry. Maybe you just need a really nice, kind man that, you know, that will understand you. And I go, Mum, if there's no chemistry then it's not going to work for me. So there's got to be a spark. Becky Adlington talked about how difficult it was when you were in the public eye of finding a suitable partner and, and dating and so on and so forth. Do you recognise the sort of thing that she, she refers to? Yeah, I think as people think that if you're in the public eye, you're at parties every five minutes. You know, there is a real misconception of what being in the public eye is. I mean, I'm really quite normal. I like a very normal life. Mm. I live in the countryside. I don't live in town. I don't go to this, that and the other. I've never been particularly interested in being in front of a camera. It's just been the job that's come my way and it's how I earn my living. Um, 
So I don't, <clears throat> I don't know that that's, you know, there is, as I said, this misconception, even more so now with five minutes of fame coming along and people, you know, being famous but not doing anything particularly, just just being married to someone who's famous or being on a reality TV show for five minutes and then you're exposable and disposable and they get another person. And I think that's almost harder in a way because you get used to this fame, you crave it, and then it's removed and somebody else comes along. Whereas I've never, I've never craved fame. It's not been what I did, what I what I swam for, and it's not what I do, what I do now for. It, I, it just is a sort of a byproduct, really. But many people who've finished a very successful sporting career like yours find it very difficult to go back out of the limelight and then re-enter the limelight again by going into television or media work to try and recapture that. You're really? saying that isn't you? No, but then I never went out. So, I mean, I, I sort of got these job opportunities in the early 80s when the people were first being offered those sort of positions. Never earned a penny from my sport. So I had to go and earn a living. I had, I had a debt when I came out of sport, a fairly considerable one. I arrived in London with all my clothes in my hire car. It got broken into on day two. And I had the clothes I stood up in and the money in my purse. And that's all I had. So... You know, my parents were split up. My mum didn't have a great deal of money. She was looking after the boys by herself. My dad had gone off with some 18-year-old to have a midlife crisis. And I was there in the clothes that I stood up in, in a city I you know, hardly knew. <laughs> Not knowing what the hell I was going to do next, really. Um, and I went and shared a flat with Suzanne Dando. And we learnt on our feet. I put three stone on. I got really fat. I always say that I used to eat like a horse. And then within six months, I looked like a horse. And I had to learn to re-educate myself because I rebelled. You know, I was used to eating a huge amount of food and, and training. And then I stopped training, but just carried on eating a huge amount of food. And... Um, and just, yeah, so these were all massive, huge experiences and I had to just learn to deal with it all by myself or with my little group of friends. Was that almost like a delayed adolescence? Possibly, yeah. It was sort of a letting down the hair, you know, let's go a bit mad. Um, but it, a lot of athletes have it, find it quite difficult to re-educate yourself with nutrition and food because we are used to burning a huge amount of calories. Mm. And then you do have this phase where you just kind of rebel a little bit and do very little and then gradually you work your way back. And I think it took me about two years to get back to a sort of sensible place. And then ever since then, I've always you know, watched it fairly carefully. If we were to meet in five years' time, what do you think you might say to me, Gary, since we last met, I have done this? What do you think you'd like to do in the next five years? Um, I'm really keen to get the PT business off the ground. You know, I, I love the idea of being able to work with, with individuals and clients and, and being able to help them to get on top of their bad food habits, their bad exercise habits, get themselves back to a place where they're more confident with themselves and they're healthier. Um, and I would get a lot of personal satisfaction out of that. I don't want to do the miles that I used to do on the road. I used to knock out 30,000 and 40,000 miles a year at one stage and I just feel like I'm wasting my life sitting in a car in a traffic jam. So the idea of being able to work um, more from home and have people come to me is really appealing. I've still got a 10-year-old that loves sport, that plays rugby, that swims, that does tennis and football. Um, my daughter still lives at home. Um, my son doesn't live very far away. So I'm still very much a, a family person. So at the moment, you know, that's probably my next big challenge, really, is to get that business off the ground. We talked to a, f a few minutes ago about your control, maybe a little bit of control in your nature, especially in your relationship. Do you see that sort of migrating into, into PT and mm. sort of the idea that you, you do as I say, otherwise no, we're not... No, no, I see that. I don't, I don't believe that I'm controlling. What I'm saying is I don't like being controlled. So yeah, I'm but, not controlled. I'm the opposite. I yeah, actually, but anybody who doesn't like being controlled will control... Really? to actually get over. It's a really yeah. difficult balance in a relationship about 
you know about how do you not control and how do you not get walked yeah, over? Yeah, no, I agree. I think that is a very tough balance. I think my generation is stuck in a little bit of a difficult place. So this is my theory. Go on. I'm telling you, absolute rubbish. So my theory is that the majority of people roughly my age have been brought up with quite old-fashioned traditional family roles where the man goes out to work, brings the money home, and the wife stays at home and she might have a part-time job. She's the wife and she cooks the dinner and she cleans the house. They believe in equality because that's what they're told they're supposed to believe in, but they're hardwired to, to, be, to be mum and mum and dad. But my children's generation have been brought up by successful women, sometimes single mums, but women that have their own jobs and their own opinions. My son's girlfriend is his boss at work and is four years older. He has no issue with it whatsoever. But my, the age group of the people that I'm generally interested in, although they believe in equality, don't necessarily have hardwired to accept it. So I'm stuck between a rock and a hard place. And the fact that I, all I want is equality. I want the, the, the control to be equal. I don't want to be controlled or to control. I want that kind of equality. And when does it come out, Sharon, in you, when you, what sort of things happen when you feel you're being controlled? Is that when the sharp tongue comes probably. out? Probably, yeah, probably. Yeah, I don't to, know. You have to learn to walk away. I know. Is that, is, that, is that what you should do? Counts ten and walk away and not say the things that you were going to later regret. Well, as you pointed out yourself, when you get into those sort of battles with people, you both lose because yeah, ultimately, you ultimately you feel a bit sorry for the person that you've just trampled all over and they go away hating you. Mm, now, you see, they don't trample all over me because I don't no, pick... You tra- no, you... no, no, all the other way around. Because yes, I don't pick the sort of people that, 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 that... I pick people that are equal. So I pick people that are just as strong as me. So the reason why the arguments get so bad is because we're both very strong. So if I pick somebody that I trampled all over, that would never work because I would lose respect for them and, and we wouldn't have a relationship. But sadly, the people I choose are very strong individuals that are just as strong as I am. In the last part of our recording, I'd like to talk about mental health issues. And you've gone through a really tough year and there'll be many people listening to this broadcast who are going through tough times mm. themselves. And I especially would like to look at it from a female perspective. Suppose there are women listening to this program or men who have partners who might be going through a tough time. What would your message be to them? I think you have to um, you have to try to look at your glasses half full. So whenever I get really down about mum not being there, I always re- try to think about how lucky I am to have had her in my life and to have had her for the length of time that I did and how she eventually, you know, sadly passed away. She was able to live the life she wanted to almost right up to the very end. Because the pity then becomes, it's pity for me, not pity for her. It's pity for what I've lost, you know, not for my mum, really. Because my mum had all of us there. We were able to get her home. She had all her children and all her grandchildren around and she couldn't have had it more the way she wanted it. Um, so I think you have to kind of go, OK, what's the positive out of this? How lucky have I been? And there may be people listening that haven't been lucky, that lost their, you know, lost their family when they've been really young. And that's ten times worse. Um so that's the way that I was always try to see the positive in any situation. I am a half full person. I believe really wholeheartedly that you have to try to be that way in life because we're all going to get, you know, side swipes without doubt. Um, and then I think that you have to look at the long game and ultimately time does heal things. So you just take every day as it comes and you try to be busy. You try to do something positive. You try to grow, you try to do something new and you try to spend time with people that care about you. And how important is it to be able to talk over your problems? Um, very important. I think women are better at it. 
So that then brings me back to, you know, to, to Grace's poor friend Tom, who was the most lovely, wonderful 18-year-old young man with so much going for him. And there was some moment of despair which caused him to do something just so terrible. And I cannot imagine how his parents are feeling and how they're having to deal with this. Because it was a moment of madness. I'm led to believe that young boys don't develop a certain part of their brain until slightly later than young girls. I don't know if that's true. You have that's to tell true. Me Is it the, part, the reasoning part of their brain? Yeah, but it's called the front cortex. Yeah. It doesn't stop developing until... 24 to 26 normally it develops fully in women before men we we need to address that we need to understand that that young guys in general aren't great talkers but young guys particularly bottle things up and then think that there's no way out and what's so sad about tom is that probably now eight months later he'd be in a totally different place Mm. but he never got there you know and the effect that he had on his, his immediate friendship group was just devastating Nobody can ever fully understand the devastation left behind in no. those situations. No, you know, and, and you, that happened very close to after my mum died. So the way that I rationalised that with my mum was, well, how, you know, how I'm coming to terms with losing my mum and what I'm missing out on, but that is nothing compared to what Tom's parents are having to try and deal with. So again, stop whinging, Sharon, because there are a lot of people in a lot worse situation than you. Sharon Davis, many thanks for joining me Thank on you. The Sporting Couch. You've been listening to On The Sporting Couch, a programme that's attempted to lift the lid on mental health issues in sport. I'm Gary Bloom, a psychotherapist, counsellor and sports broadcaster, and my guest has been former Olympic swimmer and TV presenter Sharon Davis. I hope the programme will have encouraged anyone who has or knows anyone who has mental health issues to come forward and get help. And there are some useful links on the TalkSport website if you look at talksport.com forward slash sporting couch. I'm Gary Bloom and please remember there's no such thing as good health without good mental health. Goodbye. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.